Hello, and welcome to Manga Explaining. Listen to me. It's the occasional interview version of the Manga Explaining podcast where we talk to some of the movers and shakers in the world of manga to supplement our regular reading list. This week, Deb Aoki and myself, Christopher Woodrow Butcher, interview two esteemed gentlemen and lifers in the manga industry, Patrick Massius and Matt Alt. They're the dynamic duo behind Pure Tokyoscope, a very cool podcast. Chip, if you're listening, think of it like a crossover issue. Just a few notes before we jump in. Deb has some audio issues for the first few minutes, but fear not, those do disappear, although the melodic Hawaiian bird song continues throughout the episode. Also, I totally got the start time wrong, due to this episode being recorded in Hawaii, Tokyo, and Taiwan, and during Daylight Savings Time. What an international episode! So I jump in and join the interview after the break, about 34 minutes in. Finally, we want to offer our sincere thanks to Patrick and Matt for joining us on Mangasplaining, and we'd invite you to go check out the Pure Tokyo Scope podcast on whatever you're using to listen to me right now, but maybe wait until after this episode's over. Now, here's Deb with the real start of the interview. Hello, and welcome to Pure Manga Splaining's Tokyo Scope. <laughs> <laughs> nice. um, it rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> the show where two podcasts, ostensibly about similar things, collide into each other. We are here today with our friends, Matt Alt and Patrick Macias. Please introduce yourselves, my friends. By the way, I prefer merge or combine, you know, like Voltron. It's like reforming uh, the head. Is that the, is that the word you're looking for? What, what's the word I'm looking for? Gatai. Gatai. Well, in Japanese, that'd be the word. I didn't want, you know, I didn't want to drop any like incredible, you know, science on people just yet. So anyway, I'm Matt Alt. I'm the author of Pure Invention, How Japan Made the Modern World, and it really did. And also the co-host of the Pure Tokyoscope podcast. You should check both of these things out if you haven't. And Oh, and me. I'm Patrick Macias. I'm the editor-in-chief of Otaku USA magazine and the author of several books on Japanese pop culture. And lately, yeah, we've been doing the Pure Tokyo Scope podcast with uh, Mr. Matt Alt. Now I'm here. And now we're here with you, Deb. Thanks for having <laughs> us. You invited us virtually to glorious Hawaii. How nice. <laughs> yeah, that's why we're getting this. The sounds of amazing Po'o Valley, which includes a wet vac across the river from me, <laughs> some chickens, and the occasional this is like pigeon. a tough, gritty reboot of the Brady Bunch goes to Hawaii. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and I hope I hope you're sitting with a huge glass of Hawaiian punch. Well, it's not. It's, it's no Hawaiian punch is red. You can't fool me. It's tea, <laughs> <laughs> but it's in a Hawaii Starbucks mug. So does that count? It does. That counts. That counts. So, Deb, why have you had us here? Why have you conjured us out of the ether to your podcast today? That's that's the that's the burning question. I'm sure we all need the listeners answers. have. Yeah. Well, the obvious marketing reason is I think all of our listeners, manga listeners, should listen to Pure Tokyo's Go. Because I think if you love manga spinning, you'll love this podcast. How would you guys describe your podcast? What's your what's your elevator pitch? Patrick? Rambling, uh, <laughs> disjointed, stream of consciousness, filled with a bunch of old Shakey's commercials from 1978, typically. I was going to say we fit the we fit the profile the 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 heretofore unfilled need for middle aged otaku podcasts <laughs> uh, straight out of Tokyo news you can use and uh, other fun topics from the streets the burning streets of rage of Tokyo Japan because you guys are both living in Tokyo right yeah I've been here for like this actually March will mark my twentieth year here Patrick's been here. A long time, but not quite as long. 
Yeah, I mean, I've been stuck in my room for the last three years because of this global health pandemic, but I moved here in 2018, so... Is that the year we make contact? No, I believe that was 2010. It's the year we... I don't know, the year we made coupons? I don't know. (laughs) So, yes, we're here. We're here, and... We're, you can't stop us. We're not going back anytime soon. And we're ready and raring to talk about manga. We want to explain some manga. Or is it your job to explain the manga to us? I don't know. You, 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 Story you, time. Yeah. I think you guys are actually better equipped to, for this because you guys have been working in this field for quite some time. I'm, I'm just an interested fan much longer than I've ever been a quote unquote professional. Like you guys have, like Matt and I know you've translated many an interesting manga title. Many challenging manga titles. Sure. Yeah, actually, you know, on a, on a serious note, my wife Hiroko Yoda and I have been running a localization company in Tokyo for the last, you know, 20 years and, and a couple years before that in the States. And while we mainly focused on video games for a very long time, we over the years have done some fun manga. You know, one of the earliest ones we did was for CMX. It was called The Young Magician then we did one called Togari, these like the minor ones. And then they started to get more interesting. For Viz, we did the entire run of Doro Hedoro, wow. Hiroko and I. And then most famously in Japan anyway, we did the entire run of Doraemon, which is such a hugely popular manga series here in Japan. It's almost like beyond manga. It's like culture. Wait, so you're the guy who removed all the lolicon from Doraemon? <laughs> I'm the guy. I'm I was start a thread on Twitter accusing you personally. I, I was I was the guy, you know, and do it because I'll just run through the the Doko Demo door, the anywhere door to a to another place. And that was fun, but unfortunately it's only available on Amazon in North America as a Kindle ebook. It isn't uh, actually printed up because I guess perhaps printing 15,000 pages which we had to do over the course of a year was a little too much for most publishers to do. So yeah, we've done that. And Patrick's done a ton of stuff in this sphere, not translation-wise, but more like cultural critic and like writer-wise, right? Editing, I guess. Right. Yeah. I mean, I started working at Viz in like 1997. So we were kind of like bathing in manga, making it and reading it and bugging other publishers for freebies and stuff like that. And then, yeah, gradually moved into just being an editor chief for Otaku USA and writing a bunch of books and just kind of trying to keep up with like the weird subculture stuff in Japan and where all that was going. You've written a couple of subculture books, right? And you have one coming up pretty soon? Yeah, I think, gosh, it sounds like there's going to be three books coming out at the end of the year. Yeah. Some of them have been announced, some of them haven't. So, but I know our mutual friend Samuel Satin is a co-author of at least two of them. So I kind of have lost track of which ones I can talk about. Which ones? Well, my favorite one was is from quite some time ago. It's Tokyoscope, which gives our podcast half its name. And it was like, you know, now in the internet era, you know, the inner tubes where you can like look anything up. It's cool. But like back when that book came out around, what was it? 99? 2000? 2001, I think. Yeah. It was a space odyssey, I believe. And <laughs> it was it was like a, that that book is, I mean, I should let you talk about it, but it's just to me as an outsider, it was like this you know, guidebook to all of the crazy Japanese cinema that didn't really make it on the TV so much when you were a kid, you know, a a lot of really amazing directors and there are a lot of genres. And I remember like buying copies of that book and just giving it to friends so that we could like go to video search of Miami or like whatever it was, wherever we got our bootleg tapes back then. Yeah. I mean, I used to just spend like every waking moment I possibly could at Japantown in San Francisco and just like combing the racks at Books Kinikuniya. And then they had 
People Video was the rental store there, and they just had like a wall of like exploitation and like Yakuza movies and stuff like that. Right. So I was just going into wow. the deep end, and I, I still do. But I mean, even that's kind of hard to get your video store kicks here in Japan, despite what they tell you. Physical media here is dying pretty fast. But yeah, that's that's kind of where I got my education in this stuff. You two were really lucky. I mean, Deb, you grew up in Hawaii, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, Patrick, you're on like you're in California. We're marinated in it. Mary, exactly. I can hear that. I can see the birds like, you know, tweeting behind you and everything. Uh, <laughs> palm trees. The blue but, like, bird of happiness. DC. I grew up in Maryland in the DC suburbs. And like we like it was really tough to to find Japanese content that wasn't oh. stuff that was just being broadcast on TV. Mm. So I am envious of you guys. I have to ask you, it's like I think because we're all kind of old school, like I guess fans, right? We 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 got into this before it was before you kids could get this stuff the same day as Japan. Even before Kim Kardashian, that's how old school. <laughs> pre Pokemon, pre Pokemon, pre Pokemon. There's yeah. that photo of her like reading Naruto, like oh, off the wow. rack or something like that, and that was just like what? And that's that's I, I, what did it for if me. You live too long, you see horrible things. I think that's <laughs> I was going to say that's what got me starting to read Naruto. I mean, if a tastemaker like her reads it, why am I not reading it's it? Good enough for Kim Kardashian. It's good enough for me. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we interrupted. You were saying? No, no. I was just wondering because I know what my gateway drug was into this. Uh, what into was this your gateway drug? Lifelong, Marijuana? expensive thing. No, no, that's that's boring in Hawaii. You know that. <laughs> no. So what was so what was your gateway into Japanese otaku, you know, pop culture? One was Princess Knight, the anime. Oh, okay. Wow. Two, we had several Japanese movie theaters here in Hawaii. Right. And so I saw it at the, I think, the Toyo Theater in Hawaii. That's like proto shoujo manga anime. Yeah. And they showed it on TV too, the TV show. Wow. Like my sister, she's five years older than me, so she can still sing the theme song. Was it subtitled or dubbed, if I may ask? Uh, subtitled. Okay. Oh, okay. So this is like a Hawaii only thing. I don't think, I know that that was dubbed, but I don't think it widely, I don't think it was widely broadcast in, in the main, in the, what do you call it? The mainland? Yeah. We don't know why. Like, but Speed Racer was. Yeah. Patrick, do you know? No. I mean, yeah, there was a ton of Japanese TV, anime and tokusatsu shows that were only shown in Hawaii. Like Kikaida is like yes. a famous one that's like huge in Hawaii that like we never really got on the mainland so really yeah, oh yeah, yeah it's sure. so depressing i always run into hawaiians and they're like ever like they're so they know they're so you know kikaider being an early tokusatsu hero guitar mm. playing half you know cyborg half, actually he's all cyborg he's all he's robot a Jinzo Ningen. he's a Jinzo. he's a yes he's an android half blue half red really awesome i can still sing the song <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah, so, so like Hawaiians got all that stuff. The, the Kikaider, like a lot of kaiju stuff, a lot of tokusatsu stuff. You know, we didn't There's pictures of Kikaida in costume, like visiting Hawaii, like shaking hands with like the governor and stuff. Like, it's really amazing. Like there was like a mania. I think Common Rider, some I think V3 also showed that. Common Rider. Wow. Yeah, yeah, there were a bunch of shows. I just well, saw a photo of like Shotaro Ishinomori coming oh, to Hawaii, wow. which I did not know about, but. I only found that the Shotaro Ishinomori created all the shows that I really yeah. loved in Hawaii very recently. Like we we had Robocon. Yeah. We had oh, yeah. Rider. Wow. We yeah, he had Go Ranger. Ranger. Yeah. Go Ranger. We had, yeah. We had all we had Inazuman. Yes. Yep. Yes. So it must have been real tough con, you know, convincing him to come to Hawaii for a vacation. That must have been a you know, it must have been uh, actually it's closer to Japan too. It's only what is that, an eight hour flight? Six? I think so, yeah. 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 There's some legendary story I heard about like all the top anime manga creators like got on a plane and flew to Hawaii and like 
May what? 1977 to see Star Wars. Because it wow. didn't until 78. Yes. They, no. They, the buzz was so big, they had to go see it, and then they came back. And wow. Invented cooler stuff like Message from Space. Yes, exactly. Wars. Oh, my God. Was I in line with like some Japanese manga legends at the Cinerama Theater? With, yeah. Because yeah. I saw it seven times. <laughs> oh, wow. That's I, how big of a nerd I was. <laughs> Well, you know, it's, it's the the Hawaii Japan connection is really strong. I know, you know, like Bullmark, which is this legendary producer of of, of Japanese toys, diecast mm-hmm. toys, but mainly vinyl, vinyl kaiju toys. Mm-hmm. They actually, I know, produced like color variations specifically for the Hawaiian market, and those are actually quite valuable right now. So, start hunting. Go through your neighbors' basements, you know, closets. You might find some kaiju vinyls in there that are, you know, Very you can treasure. use to pay for your flight back. <laughs> I have a couple of those, but they're oh, pretty, they, they're pretty well loved, so they're oh, not worth anything. I love those love well loved kaiju toys. They belong in a museum. <laughs> oh, stop it! <laughs> okay, so wait, wait, we keep fighting here. So, Princess Knight, Princess Knight, and or was Princess Knight basically it? Princess Knight, Kikaida, and Candy Candy. Oh man, that's a trifecta. Candy Candy. <laughs> I know that like that was broadcast or it wasn't broadcast. I think was it Patrick? Is it FHE? Who brought it out? Is that like Jim Terry? There's one one volume of yeah, Family Home Entertainment. As there's there's an English dub of just like a couple episodes on one VHS tape with a totally different theme song. Like the the, the <laughs> Japanese one has that harpsichord intro. That's like mm. yeah, I know it's just very you know kind of girly manga. Like you're kind of classic. A uh, uh-huh. girl anime theme, and the American one is like this. It's like the soft rock thing. It's, oh, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's a like candy, candy. It's really no. It's on. It's on YouTube. It's. It's. I've never actually oh, no. seen the show. The intro just would come up like FHE Family Home Entertainment was this company, and this is kind of leading mm. into like well, my you know drugs were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At, at video stores in in Maryland, you would occasionally find these like just one off videotapes of anime like. Dangard Ace or Starvengers, which is known as Get a Robo G in, in Japan. Oh, and wow. They, I would only rent the robot ones. And it, would, it's, it, would, it was kind of, you know, really depressing in a sense. It was cool. You get these shows, but there's only two episodes in each tape. We never, like volume two, I never found in any of my video stores, but they had these long previews for other series that, that the same company had done. Candy Candy was one of them. You know, wow. uh, Captain Future was another. Captain Harlock. And like, it was really tough. I would just, you know, I was like five at the time. I would just watch the mm. first two episodes of Dangard Ace over and over and over again, which is really depressing because if you know Dangard Ace, like the robot doesn't actually appear until like episode three. <laughs> so yeah, no, the whole point of Dangard Ace was it was this anime show. Matsumoto Leiji designed the robots and he hated designing uh-huh. robots. So the show turned into this, like, it was like he focused on how much training you had to do to get into the robot first. And oh, so wow. it was just nonstop. Come on, you got to practice docking. Come on, come on. Like over and over again, the spaceship's like docking and like failing to dock. And like, I mean, it makes sense. Like, you know, nobody's like a born super robot pilot. You have to train to become a super robot pilot. That's how I became one anyway. It's very much a get in the robot. Exactly. Very exactly. much. much. <laughs> Shinji just got in the robot and he could do it. But like, you know, apparently- I remember that docking could... scene. I had that tape too growing yeah. up. And I just remember there's like a 20 minutes of just, he having he's having nightmares about docking. He's trying to dock. Yes. Trying yes. To dock like it's. it's I really still have PTSD. I still do. But no, it's it's like so. I'm happy I had access to that because otherwise I wouldn't have had access to anything. But compared to like mm. I don't know French people, Italian people, mm. Spanish people, 
Hawaiian people, like who had all of this stuff. God, I'm so jealous. We're, we're, I, we just, it was like the, the air we breathed. <laughs> like we just thought everybody had it, you know, like it, it, like snow was completely something I didn't, I couldn't right. fathom, right? So like the thought that y- you could go anywhere in the world and there wouldn't be this much Japanese right. content never well, occurred I, to me at that age. I, <laughs> I was like, you know, so frustrated that that was what drove me to really start learning Japanese and drove me to really want to go to Japan. Because I was like, what the hell? Why do these people have this stuff that's so much cooler than my own people's stuff? Like literally, like even at age like 10, I was thinking that. I was like, man, you know, because it was just so obvious that that the Japanese approached their art, you know, of making children's entertainment with with much more, I, I don't know. They were much more serious about it, you know. Mm-hmm. They approached it with this craftsmanship that you it, it's not that Americans didn't have craftsmanship in their, you know, comic book art or anything like that. You know, I'm a huge mm-hmm. fan of, you know, a, a lot of that stuff, but Japanese just on the whole like the bar was just much higher. So, it's often made me wonder like if I had better access to streaming, like instantly dubbed or sub <laughs> content, would I have oh. like I'm an inherently lazy person, would I have bothered to learn Japanese? I don't know. Most people don't if they don't have to, right? Because Japanese is a really sure. difficult language. Yeah, it's not really – it's not like, you know, Spanish or French where you have some kind of shared roots in like Latin. It's it's completely different. So I mean, it's, yeah. it's not only the grammar is backwards, but the characters are completely different. And yes. And they can mean different things in different contexts. And apparently, according to the BBC's outgoing correspondent, all of Japan is backwards. So, oh, no, you have to explain this. We were talking about this before we got on. So, please. Oh, well, right, right before we recorded this, the outgoing correspondent of the BBC wrote this article like, oh, you're so behind the times, Japan. He's leaving Japan now to be assigned to a different area. And it's just this kind of like, he's. He's, it's it's not like a it's not a rage bait piece exactly, but he's just crapping on all sorts of aspects of Japanese society, many of which I agree. Like I I despise Japanese politics too. Like I really hate the bureaucracy here too. But it's mm. like I don't know. It, it just it just came across as as a as as a kind of I don't know a turd in the punch bowl. I believe is what we yeah, say. Yeah, I mean Reddit is filled with posts like this, and I don't understand why they don't get printed by the BBC. You well, know? you know, first you have to become a journalist, then you have to become like the the the, the bureau chief of of Japan, I guess. But the thing, you know, it's it's he's not like completely off base, but it's written in this just really like, oh, you know, here's where you're going wrong, Japan. But then I, I actually asked the guy on Twitter, do you speak Japanese? And it turns out he doesn't. So it's like, do you think maybe the fact that you aren't able to interact with the, this entire race of people in their own language may have colored your your perceptions just a little bit? You know, do, would you would you would you leave some you know opening there for that? But you know, I, sure, forgive no, me, I don't want to digress into negativity. Them. No, it just kind of makes you wonder, like, how did this guy get this assignment? You know. Well, journalists get, tend to get like rotated through positions. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, and I'm not somebody who believes, you know, it's obviously like there's a lot of murder mystery writers out there who have never murdered anyone. I, I hope, <laughs> you know, I don't, you're right. It's like, I don't I guess. Think- <laughs> that shouldn't be a prerequisite. <laughs> exactly. So I get it. You know, like I don't, I'm not going to dismiss somebody out of hand just because they can't speak the language of the place they're in. I mean, like one of my favorite writers on Japan, Lafcadio Hearn, doesn't speak any Japanese. I think if you, if, if you have a very, very like open mind and you are somebody who is like culturally sensitive and you don't have a chip on your shoulder you absolutely don't need to speak japanese to 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 pick up like on things here but like most people i know who are in that position aren't writing like you know 
pieces to dumping on Japan. Like, you know what I mean? They're writing pieces of loving on Japan, which is a completely different sort of thing. So, no, well, Japan is such an interesting, you know, Japan and the culture and the translation, right? Sure. There's always this kind of thing where people are kind of one upping each other. Yeah. Like, I'm more this than you. I know more than you. I, yeah. and then the way that, I don't know, like, I, I saw that book, like the Ikigai, the, the Japanese art of the blah, blah, right. blah. Like yeah. all, everyone hates that book. <laughs> well, it's the, the, the uh, Ikigai is kind of another issue because it's written by, it, it's this book talking about how Japanese people have, Ikigai is just a word that means like your, your rise and detra, right? Your, your kind of meaning, you know, finding your meaning for living. And it, but it's a book written by a bunch of foreign guys about Japan. Like they, they kind of parachute into Japan. And and they and they write this thing about people finding their their and it's it's actually centered really hugely in Okinawa. Oh, I didn't know that. They research they 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 conducted some research on an island in Okinawa where the average like people just live really long and happy and satisfied lives. It's you know, but this is something that's actually kind of overlaps the Mediterranean. I, I think uh, like yeah. a lot of island life, you get this kind of thing, and that's actually the really interesting part about it. But. Yeah. Ikigai has become this term in English to mean, you know, finding your your meaning in life. But what isn't really ever explained in that book and what what isn't understood by people at large is that the word ikigai is very neutral. Like if you are a serial killer who enjoys like binding, torturing and killing people, that could be your ikigai. You know what I mean? It's like, it's just like whatever drives you in life. So like, yes, it's positive. We should find our ikigai, but there are good ikigai and there are bad ikigai. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's not like it's a universally beautiful term or anything like that. Because you know? iki means, iki is goal, right? And guy but, is way? No, no, no. Ikigai so is, is, is ikiru. It's like ikiru, living. To live. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's like your your passion for living, your reason for living. Do you know uh, what I mean? Like what, uh. what, what motivates you to get up in the morning? But you know, like, you know, if you're a psychopath, like what motivates you to get up in the morning might not be something exactly socially acceptable. That way your ikigai might be, you know, wanting to go out and, you know, cause mayhem. So <laughs> it's, it's not like it's, you know. I, yes, you should find what motivates you in life, but hopefully it should be something, I, I don't know, positive, <laughs> you know, something that doesn't, and that aspect is not really explored in there. But I want to bring this back around because I think both of you are great examples of found, finding your geeky, ikigai. Your ikigai. Right? <laughs> you guys have found like your, something that came out of nowhere, apparently. Well, mine is docking giant robots. I'm not sure. <laughs> what is Patrick's? Patrick's, Patrick, what was yours? Uh, salami <laughs> sandwiches, maybe. I really miss those. You can't really get a decent one here in Tokyo. You can't. There's no I, deli meats in this country. Yeah. If I could write like a slam piece for the BBC <laughs> right. decrying the lack of like submarine sandwiches, like, you know, I'm here. <laughs> Oh, now I know what to bring for you guys for Ormi. Exactly. Yeah, 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 I'm sure deli meats. Yeah, bring that through customs. A big old Columbus that. salami. <laughs> Although, you know, there, there's been a boom for Philly cheesesteaks in Tokyo recently. So I've been like, yes, like I can finally get my Philly cheesesteaks again. There's like two or three Philly cheesesteak restaurants in Tokyo alone. So it's like, please, more. Anyway, Patrick's Ikigai sandwiches. I'm Ikigai sandwiches, but going back to like manga origin stories, like for me, like I grew up watching. Star Blazers, Battle of the Planets, Ooh. all these kind of like syndicated early anime on TV. But then, you know, that was only part of the equation because the other side of it was all this manga that a lot of these things had roots mm. in, you know. And it was really Fred Schott's book, Manga Manga, yes. the world of Japanese comics that like Absolutely. blew my head off. And yep. it also contained not only like a survey of the history of manga in Japan going back, you know, 
hundreds of years, but also to actually including actual excerpts of manga in English, like Rose yep. of Versailles was in there. Phoenix. Phoenix, of course. And my personal favorite was Ghost Warrior. Oh, yeah. Leiji, yeah. who had created oh, Star Blazers. And like right. it, and it Dangardace. Took, and Dangardace. <laughs> but it kind of had this line of kind of like melancholy and kind of like obsession with World War II that was like things that were bubbling beneath the surface in Star Blazers, which mm. was a show I loved when I was a kid. But it kind of took it to the next level. And I became like really hooked really yeah. trying to pick up on where where you know how manga could take you deeper inside the anime information field if i may use a term <gasps> and that kind of got me digging around at Kinikunia in San Francisco looking for stuff and eventually you know working at Viz but i remember really clearly i was going to like anime like kind of fan gatherings like the the CFO would have like viewing parties at their houses and stuff like that and there were always people peddlers i guess selling stuff you know from their collections or whatever and someone had an untranslated copy of uh, like violence jack oh man oh. And not the original violence jack but like the the second series that that gonna guy did which was like even more crazy and he had even more sex and violence and that see violence jack has an icky guy it's violence <laughs> i'm sorry go on, <laughs> go on. <laughs> sorry <laughs> And uh, yeah, well, well, Violence Jack is he's, he's, he's beyond good and evil, right? Isn't he sort of like protects the innocent and sort of like, you know, kills the, the bad guys or something? I don't know. There's just, yeah. there's blood I don't know the story of Violence Jack, actually. I just know that it has an awesome title. It's pretty similar to Hokuto no Ken, right? It's right. Fist of the North Star, basically. There's a oh. giant earthquake that destroys the world. And then out of it come like motorcycle gangs and this kind of like incredible Hulk figure called Violence Jack, who's sort of, you know, Damn. Like, will just sort of mess people up with a big jackknife. But in the second series, there's, it's, there's like a bunch of like pro wrestlers. There's like <laughs> boxing. Like it's a more advanced version of a, right. Wow. Scenario. Post-apocalyptic but, uh, organized sports. Has it been, has it been released by Viz or anybody or is it too no. violence? Too violence? There's some, there's they just barely fan, did Date Devil Man. Yeah. Yeah. There's some fan translations. I think of the original series. If anyone's doing the second series, I highly recommend it. Cause Remember, I had the complete set, like, plus 30 volumes. Oh, Violent. Me and Jason. Violent Check, I think, the anime is out on Discotech, but not the Yeah, the anime has been, like, reissued over and over and over again. Mm. As well it should be. Yeah, but the thing about the manga is, like, that really, you did not need to know any Japanese to read it, because it was so (laughs) propulsive. I mean, you could just follow the panels, and it would just, it would be like anime on the page. And, like, I was already a comic book nerd. I loved Alan Moore and what he was doing with Swamp Thing and stuff like that, but it was so wordy mm. and like the like reading comic books is like a slow or it was back then like a slower mm. you know like entertainment medium it just moved slower but like manga just like it was like eating like a bowl of ramen like yeah kinetic quick. like it, it very kinetic and that was like a, a big draw for me was like that energy mm. kick you get from a good volume of manga is like you know up there with caffeine and stronger substances that's absolutely true because you can actually. Without reading, being able to read much Japanese, you can understand what's what's happening in the story. Yeah, because and actually, I, I think that's really different from what one of the big key differences, it, to my mind, between the anime uh, in particular of times of old and now. You know, it it was just much more visually driven back then. Like, there's a lot of talking heads in anime now, and like, ah. there are some kinetic anime, like Chainsaw Man. I thought was really was really great that way. But there's a lot of like they've, they they anime have gotten much more plot driven and talky recently. I think 
mm. over the last couple of decades, really. You know, there's so much slice of life stuff now where it's set like in high schools and it's like kind of uh, variations on that. And there's a lot of like interactions between kind of template style characters, like stereotypical mm. characters that are driven more by fan expectations of what characters like that do in a given scenario than it is about the the, the kind of the, the, the visual excitement. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm like Patrick, you know, I didn't understand Japanese at all when I was first starting to encounter this stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's why, actually, you guys all mentioned it, Fred Schott's work, Manga Manga. Yes. I mean, to me, like, I loved Ghost Warrior, but the one that left the longest, the, the, the biggest impression on me was was actually Phoenix, which is, this, mm-hmm. in, in Fred Schott's book, there's this, it's an Osamu Tezuka story taken from Hinotori about mm-hmm. a man who is carving a Buddhist statue, and then, like, he 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 dies and he's like born and reborn again and again in different animal bodies. And then mm-hmm. he goes through these like cycles of life. And then like all of a sudden, like he meets the Phoenix and the Phoenix is like, well, I'm going to send you back. And he, he is, he, he wakes up on the floor of his studio and it's not clear whether this was a dream, whether he had like a heart attack and like the Hinotori was kind of like his benefactor or whatever. But then he goes mm. on to start carving the Buddha statue again. And it was so different from not only was like content wise so different from anything I'd read, mm. but like it was steeped in this religious tradition I knew nothing about. You know, in suburban mm. Maryland, there weren't a lot of Buddhists around. I'm sure there were, but <laughs> like, you, didn't really, you didn't really encounter them. And so it was this kind of window into this whole other world. And, you know, ironically, I'm not a huge Tezuka fan in general. Like I love him, I respect him, but I find stuff like, you know, Astro Boy a little bit dated and, and tough to read. I like his more later Gekiga kind of stuff if I read it like, you know, Tori Phoenix 2772 and all that kind of stuff. But that manga, you know, without Fred, where would we be, really? I mean, Fred was like, Fred Schott was the pioneer on this. And if anybody's, I mean, it would be kind of crazy if you're listening to this podcast and you have not read manga manga, but, you know, please do. It's a seminal work introducing manga to the West. And the only tragedy is that it will never be updated, you know? Yeah. You know, it came out from Kodansha International at first. And that's the same That's the same imprint, the same, you know, publisher that put out our Yokai Attack and Ninja oh, Attack right? and Yurei Attack. Oh. Yeah, actually, that was I was really excited when Hiroko and I submitted the proposal for Yokai Attack to Kodansha International back in like 2007. You know, the idea that this publisher had put out Fred's book was actually really foremost on like, wow, you know, we're, we're doing what we're doing. We're publishing through a, a, a company where Fred Schott published, but yeah, it's tough. Like he, he didn't have to clear permissions back then. Like nobody really cared in the early eighties. Like it yeah. was really loosey goosey and you could be like, and also he, the, the big difference is Fred was not going through like the production studios. He'd like call up going a guy. You know, he would call up Reiji Matsumoto. He'd go hang out with him. Hey, can I use your art? Sure, man. Because Fred was at the time like Tezuka's interpreter. Like he's he's yeah. literally like he's like the right hand man of the god of manga. So of course, like he's like this apostle who like descends into these other manga artists' lives, and nobody's going to say no. It was really cool that he was able to do that. It's probably something that could only happen at that one moment in history, which is like eighty three. Is that the year it came out? Eighty three. Published yeah. in eighty three. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that because that book, prior to Fred Schott's book, I was just reading manga and not knowing what I was reading, right? Like sure. I didn't know there was, I didn't know there was Shoujo and Shonen. I didn't know that there was legendary creators. I didn't know there was a whole thing about these phone book size, like why the phone book size magazines were the way they were. Right. I knew nothing. And so it was all like, I was just basically kind of 
dropped into this culture and I didn't know anything about it, despite being Japanese, right? Despite having all these Japanese bookstores, like if you don't know the context, you don't know what's going on. So right. having Fred's book gave me so much structure. Yeah. Like I'm going through this now with Korean comics, right? Right. Where okay. all of a sudden it's this world I know very little about. Right. I don't know who the legends are. I don't know who how the publishing is done. I don't know the structure. So it's like oh, I'm back to square one. <laughs> what, what are they called? Man manhua? Is that man, what, what's the... manhua? Manhua or, or webtoons. I say I hope somebody I hope somebody does, you know, manhua manhua. You know, the world of Korean world comics. Of Korean comics. Seriously, I mean, I love stuff like that. Explainers, like intelligent explainers by somebody on the inside are like so, 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 so valuable. Yeah. You know? So if anybody's listening, please write that book. What I remember is what happened after Manga Manga came out. Like manga in the US in translation, like went through a weird phase where they were trying to get it into the American comic book market. Yes. You know, like uh, Marvel Epic Comics did Akira and they flipped it and colored it. Yep. You know, Viz began doing stuff like Area 88 and My the Psychic Girl, which was just basically giving you like 22 pages of manga, which takes about like five minutes to read and then charging you like full price, like, you know, $2.99 or $3.99 or however much it was. And so it was a really weird market. Like, and then of course, there's a lot of pushback from the American comic industry and the readers. Like, what is this stuff? It's yeah. black and white. <laughs> What is this Akira? There's no there's no superheroes in it. You know, ironically, Akira got re reverse imported back into Japan, the colorized version, because Akira was, was pretty popular here too. Of course, I mean, Otomo Katsuhiro was like a kind of, I mean, he his his art was so mind bending. He basically like redefined what manga could be in the late seventies and early eighties. But those color comics like got re like it's called Akira USA or something like that. And I actually came into a bunch of them from a friend of mine who was like downsizing. And there are these amazing Japanese language explanations, like the 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 translator who kind of reverse translated them back into Japanese. They did not use Otomo's original stuff. They reverse translated them from English back into Japanese. And then he he writes these kind of like, you know, introductions to Japanese readers of what American comics are. And then there's these great interviews with people involved at, at at Marvel. So Mary Jo Duffy was the editor on those at the time. And there's this long back and forth between her and the translator of, of Akira back into Japanese, where she reveals all of this stuff. Like, you know, she was, she and a couple other people were the driving force trying to get manga in at Marvel, but Marvel's bureaucracy was just too like bloated and slow to move quickly. So they lost out on the two big titles. They want, they wanted Mazinger USA. That what? was the big one that we, yeah. And that was the first. And then Lone Wolf and Cub was the other one that she was really, really trying to get. That also went to first, I believe. And eventually they they did Akira, which I think was probably a better fit for for Marvel, truth be told. As much as I love going to Guy, Mazinger in USA is not exactly what I'd call an exemplar of his work. (laughs) It's a cool cover. But yeah, so it was really interesting seeing that kind of stuff. There's a kind of back and forth between Japan and America at that time. That's amazing. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. 
Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Wait, do we have a latecomer here? Do we have a latecomer to the podcast? Wait. Yeah, I apparently did not read my time zones correctly. I'm so sorry. Good. It's wonderful to be joining you already in progress. <laughs> sorry about that. Well, let us explain to you what we're doing today. No, I'm just kidding. You, yeah, <laughs> perfect. Now that you've joined us, we are we were talking about our gateway manga gateway drugs, and Matt, Matt was telling us how we both Patrick and I were so so lucky to have so much more Japanese exposure than he was in Maryland. But maybe mm. let's let's hop it over to you. What was your gateway drug? Yeah, where were you raised, Christopher? One of the suburbs of Toronto, Canada. Okay. I don't I don't go into it too much with the the manga explaining crew because it it's pretty inside baseball. But I think you guys can handle it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, hit us, hit us. Let's hear this. I actually grew up. My my best friend when we were growing up impersonated a university student using the proto internet and got into tape trading. With oh, wow. university students who were like basically doing the earliest fan subbing and things like that. So he would basically send blank tapes off to some other university, air quotes, university student. We were like 12 <laughs> at the time. <laughs> and they would send back eight hour EP, like super slow recorded the tapes just full of fan subbed anime, people using their like Commodore Amigas to like add fan subs with video toaster and stuff like that. And we would watch whatever we could get sent. And so I watched probably a couple hundred hours of like the entirety of anime that was available in like, you know, what I look back on as the golden age now and the like the stuff from the late eighties and the early nineties. So everything from really trash stuff to like from like lensmen and things like that. That's not trash. Well, that's, that's not trash. Take lensmen that. is <laughs> Take a that very, back. very bad movie. <laughs> the toys are great. What? The toys are, toys are pretty great. To like like everything that was hot and contemporary at the time. So like Project Aiko and Ranma. And we watched a lot of a lot of Yurisei Yatsura, which I did not get at the time. I'm like, why is Lum just this abusive character that keeps hurting everybody? <laughs> but I didn't really realize that was part of its charm. And actually, we, we, just, we just talked about this the other week on the podcast. Golden Boy was one of the anime we watched, and it was just oh, like the yeah. horniest possible thing yes. for a group wow. of 13-year-olds to watch. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So lots and lots of fun stuff like that, basically. And then from there, it's like, oh, there's, there's, there's Akira comics from this Akira anime that we watched. Oh, there's Ranma comics. Oh, and sorry. And I'm, I'm pronouncing it correctly now, but with my Canadian accent where we only have like the most nasal vowels was, oh, there's Ranma. There's Ranma comics. I'm going to go to the comic book store and buy some Ranma. And honestly, reading the comics and getting the occasional like trade paperback that Viz would do for $28 Canadian for 192 pages. I just loved the comics. Like I loved the anime. We were obviously watching it and it couldn't stop, but the comics spoke to me in a very different way. They had um, Akira in particular, because where it was in the serialization when I was picking up random issues was so far removed from the anime. It was like, you know, the, the last couple of volumes. So they had this like 
mystical quality like yeah oh my god if you go into the comics there's stories that aren't part of the anime and it's it's more and it's different and yeah it was in color as well which was kind of blew my mind on akira yeah i i kind of just started devouring anything i could afford or get my hands on but there was something about <laughs> there's something about buying this is going to sound terrible, but I, it's why I'm a little, I try to be sensitive to people who, who resort to piracy in this day and age, but there's something weird about buying manga and anime. Like if you go to the store right. and you just buy it, it's not cool anymore. <laughs> it has to be something that you like really dig for and try to seek out and try to like, you know, you can't just get it through normal channels. You have to get the real stuff that's only available from some right. randos on the internet who, you know, turned out to all be pretty nice dudes. So that's good. And the other neat thing about that was that I got a lot more of the culture that way too, because you wouldn't just get the anime. You'd get things like, here's a tape of people doing, what's it called again? When you do like, you cut anime to popular songs. Oh yeah. What is that called? They do it anime music videos, AMVs. AMV, yes. Yeah. Sorry. AMVs. So we'd get like a tape of AMVs. We got the Daikon opening, which was, I got to see that when I was like 12 or 13, just a couple of years after it was made. Like the really famous one with all the copyright infringement. We got to see Otaku no video that way actually as oh, well. Oh, that's a great one. Really great. So yeah, so I became sort of equally as fascinated by all the like not just the the commercial projects, but all the stuff behind it as well. That fandom. Yeah. Actually, I think what you're talking about there kind of bridges the the generations because manga and anime aren't really marketed like Hollywood stuff or like, you know, American stuff is you have to kind of seek it out. And in the yeah. process of seeking it out, it really becomes an identity for a lot of people, like much more so, you know, in the same way that like, you know, back when I was in school or whatever, you know, people would have to like make mixtapes and like find bands and like, oh, like, oh, this guy is, he has a solo album. And like, you kind of like, you know, trace the lineage of the music that you like back, you know, further. Same thing with anime and manga. And mm. uh, I think even now today that it's so much more is available and so much in real time. Even with that, it's still a kind of, you know, there's a huge amount of stuff you have to watch and, and to try to like contextualize and figure out. And I think that's like a big part of the charm, actually, for manga and anime. I, I agree with that. And actually, it's amazing that I've got you both here because both of you sort of continued my cultural education in a way that just watching anime and manga might not have. Patrick, Aww. your book, Cruising the Anime City was the book that I took as my guidebook to go to oh, Japan wow. for the first time in 2007. I apologize. <laughs> That's no, a great it was, book. Uh, Don't apologize. No apologies. That's no, a great no, book. I'm just, I'm just being and then Matt, I would actually, I got, you know, kind of, kind of weeby for a while there, but I was obsessed with NHK world because I didn't really, <laughs> didn't really <laughs> understand. Under someone that was obsessed. With I'm sorry. It. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so, I, this is my turn to apologize. <laughs> no, so Matt being on Japanology Plus, I was just like, that's how I came to know who Matt was. And I was like, oh, wait, right. he, he works in all the manga and anime that I sell at the store. Yeah. Like, it, I got a job at a comic book store really early. I was like 16. So then all of a sudden, like the mystery goes away when you start like ordering SKUs and things like that. Like, you know exactly sort of what's out there and what's available. But the culture became the mystery at that point once the manga and the anime became very solidified. So like trying to find Japanese cultural information was... I mean, Viz was doing the pulp time. Viz was doing just some awesome stuff with the Tokyo Scope book and with Cruising Anime City, the fresh pulp book, a collection of interviews and things like that, and then the magazine itself. And then discovering NHK World, or like at least NHK News, and then just deep diving on that for a while, learning your Japanese from their 
I actually learned all my initial <laughs> Japanese from the from the shows that they would put on of like hapless foreigners like pausing and then being instructed in Japanese and then right. saying their Japanese back to people. Like I loved that stuff. My dream is to yeah. pitch a pitch in NHK World Show of Patrick and I. That's my dream. Oh, you guys should totally <laughs> do that. We've been on a lot of shows independently, individually. I don't think we've ever been on one together. Yeah, where we activate our wonder twin powers. Exactly. And send us to like the remote countryside, like at a dairy farm or something like that. I think NHK knows that if they put us both on at the same time, it would be too powerful for Japan. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> anyway. The tragedy. Come on. I know. I know. Well, I wanted to say something about Viz since you mentioned some some real deep cuts there like Pulp and Japan Edge and stuff like that is that when I was working there at Viz, they had like Japanese subcultural people were managing the company like mm. Seiji and Satoru. These were guys who had come to America from Japan like in the 60s because they were like groovy hippies and they were kind of like steeped in like rock and roll and maybe some new age like esoterica and stuff like that. But they really wanted to like kind of share that spirit with the audience that was kind of discovering Japan through anime and manga, through things like Ursa Yatsura and the kind of more mainstreamy things. They're like, what if we show our audience, you know, this incredibly weird underground Japanese subculture, like what would happen? And that's, it didn't really reach a lot of people, but we kind of feel like it, it made an impact with the right people like yourself. If that makes sense. Oh, thank you. I look back at it and I sort of can, I actually got to see what the sales and all that stuff was at one point <laughs> when I was working at Viz. <laughs> And it was it was not good. And it was, I think, really just a matter of Viz being way ahead of its time on that stuff because it right. was really and those people specifically, because I know that the company management completely changed over. But you look now at the just like the widespread obsession with like city pop and like how Japanese film went through this whole thing. And it just seemed like, yeah, the work that the work that they were that you guys and honestly you guys were doing at pulp at the time on that little weird wing of viz just uh, it became a huge part of the culture like and obviously the mainstream like your Yatsura is back again right yeah. now too but i think that that's that's really really wild stuff i wish that that stuff was still online because it's yeah. just so much information just for so sure. Much you were doing, Patrick, you you guys were doing like some deep dive. Okay. Cause it wasn't just like, hey, here's what's on TV in Japan right now. Like you guys were doing some like really deep dives, as I recall, like on stuff that wasn't really available in, in English at all at the time, right? Well, we had like Tomo Machiyama was writing for Paul yeah. for a while. We had mm-hmm. Warren Ellis. Is he, is he, can't, I can't forget if he's oh, man. or not or something yeah. like that. But anyway, um, you know, we had like, some real wild people from Japan. There was like Shiratori. We had some people who work at like just people in the underground, in the Japanese underground, like, you know, we're presenting you their thoughts, their, their picks, their recommendations in English. And Mm. then, you know, once a month, the accountant would show up and tell us what our sales figures were. We'd get all depressed about it and we'd (laughs) meet our deadline and do it all over again. And it was, it was a fun party while it lasted. And yeah, I mean, I, I think as much money as there is going into anime and manga nowadays, I think it's important to set aside, you know, a, a little bit to sort of just kind of uh, educate the customers and sort of not educate them in a boring academic way, but to present another side of Japanese culture that they might be interested in, you know, to kind of use this as a gateway to other things. And that's kind of what I think we were doing, or I don't know. I don't see as much crossover now between anime manga and that subculture wing as there used to be, which is interesting because like you said, some of these things are much more mainstream now than they were back then. 
One yeah. of the really, I think, ironic things about the mainstreaming of anime and manga in the States now is that the, one of the big pulls for me, and I think a lot of people was knowing there was always some like deeper level to go to. And stuff like Pulp was really, you know, like that was the first place I learned about like Junji Ito and like Uzumaki and like oh, yeah. a, lot, a lot of other stuff like that. Like people like you and maybe like Ryan Sands, for example, with his same hashtag. <laughs> right. Like those kind of pe- people who are truffle hunting and doing these deep cuts. Our truffle hunting. I love it. I call it that. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. It is, it is truffle hunting. It is. I mean, I, I don't know that like among – I don't know if modern, young, mainstream anime fans are into that digging in the crate stuff as much as they used to be. I, I honestly don't know. I don't like hang out with teenagers that much. You know, offense teenagers. I mean, you know, do your thing. But, you know, being almost 50, I'd be kind of a dirty old man if I did that. So it's, I don't know really what young people are doing so much anymore. And I, but I get the sense that now that like all of this information is kind of available at your fingertips through Google or, you know, Wikipedia or, you know, there's a wiki for every show where like every aspect of everything has been cataloged, like whether it's like Saint Seiya or whether it's something modern, it's out there. And I wonder if that, like, Data used to be the currency that we trafficked in. And like the more that you knew and the more you had in your head, like the kind of a bigger of a presence you were. And now I, I just think maybe you just look like an egghead if you're like, well, actually that came from, you know, this and that. I don't know. Maybe you guys are more into that than I am. Well, sorry. So, so I, I, you know, I came up when I came up and Patrick and, and that crew, you know, I was maybe five, five years younger than you guys were at the time. So I was just, just behind going, Oh my God, these guys are writing this amazing stuff. I'm learning so much every week, but all that information now that you put together in, in those books that visited is gone. Like, right. unless you can track down a secondhand copy of that book, if it's not digital, it is yes. totally missing from the discourse. Yeah. Totally missing from the discourse. So I see stuff on, like I do the show notes every week where we talk about stuff and then you guys will, somebody will offhand mention something. I'll have to go dig up, you know, to explain what that was. This is going to be an episode full of that. I'm right, sure. Right, 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 right. But I'll go to Wikipedia. I'll be like, oh, there's stuff missing here. There's like sure. things that we've already, we, you know, air quotes as, as, as fandom or as journalists or whatever have already figured out that is not actually in this Wikipedia or it hasn't been found. And that's really interesting to me that unless it's digital, it's not part of the conversation. And that's what, but you also, you know, you can't make people read either, which is the other thing. Yeah. I I, kind of like the idea that it's, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Like it's, it's from the underground. It went back to the underground, you know, like it's sort of, it's, uh, it's buried once again. Right, right, right. Years or whatever. But it's not really gone. Like if you look for it, it is there. So like, you know, that stuff is there, but, and manga and anime are such an adolescent medium in a lot of ways that I think for most fans, like history began when they found their first manga or anime that they liked. And like anything before that's ancient history, you know, regardless of. Oh, yeah. You know, now, that's like just inherent. Talk about like Naruto is like, oh, let's talk about classic manga. Like, Naruto, like- <laughs> yeah, it's <just> right. Brutal. <laughs> right. Right. Going back to what you said about Junji Ito, it's amazing how he has like completely claimed the seinen landscape sort of for like of that kind of work just for himself. Like it's just Junji Ito and everything gets compared to Junji Ito because ju- people don't really realize that Junji Ito was a huge flop huge huge flop when they first tried to launch him with sure. Uzumaki in pulp like that first trade just did very very badly and i know that because my name is on the book on the back cover of the first Uzumaki trade printing like, oh wow they, the only person they could find for a pull quote for the back of the book was <laughs> me and my blog so wow yikes so yeah 
it was just reformatting it and waiting for the waiting for people to sort of catch up to it. But you look at the book Secret Comics Japan, like it's got Junko, it's got Junko Mizuno in there, sure, but it's also got like Shintaro Kago in there, like five to ten years before he did that Vice cover. And then suddenly became like Shintaro Kago's the dude who makes the craziest, most obs- obscene kind of manga. You know what I mean? So I think that they're, and then the other people that are actually in that book are phenomenal too. Berea pages in particular. I, no one's, still no one's done Pelopoli, but I really do think that people do find it generationally. People talk about classic mangas, anything that was bef- like even a couple of years before I started reading manga. And there is this real focus on like the now. And it's only very few series, and we're gonna we're about to get into this. We just reviewed Goodnight Pun Pun, Oyasumi Pun Pun, which is one of those series that's like from long ago and has that mythical internet quality that kind of had like they, that manga had when I started reading. Like, oh, have you read this Goodnight Pun Pun? It's kind of old, but it's really fun. you've got to read it. It's like you got to track it down. Right, Asano. right. And it's like, man, that's <laughs> it's not that old. It's still being it's still in print. Sure. Come on, sure. I mean, there's, I, you know, but Junji Ito is interesting because, you know, he's just like, he inherited, like, there's a huge horror manga tradition in Japan. You know, there's like Umezu Kazuo. I think some of his stuff has been translated. He's, Umezu is more like synonymous with horror manga in Japan than, than, than Ito is, I think. Wouldn't you say, Patrick? Yeah. I mean, I remember we did Orochi, I think was the first Umezu Kazuo that we did in English. Drifting Classroom. Did you guys do that one? Yeah. Drifting Classroom came eventually. That was after I was gone. But um, we didn't know how to market it. There was really no way to get people interested. We couldn't, there was no social media. We couldn't just post like outrageous panels of manga on the internet. You know, it was just a different world. You had to get someone to go to a bookstore and like buy this probably shrink-wrapped volume for like $20 and get them to engage at this very high level with something that was like almost like a complete unknown. Yeah, totally. So, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a tall order. Do you know, has, has Morohoshi Daijiro been translated in English? Cause he's another classic, classic horror manga artist in Japan. Who That's a I, big you know, gap. That's a big yeah. gap. And I'm waiting for them to discover him. His stuff directly influenced like unknown, like the way that the Evangelion, you know, Eva units look. That kind of lanky attack on Titan too, right? What's that? Attack on, attack Titan, on Titan too, for Titan. sure. You know, Morohoshi Daijiro does these kind of they're steeped kind of in folklore and modern horror at the same time, like a lot of bio horror, body horror. Like he's not as great of a draftsman as as some other mangaka, but his stories are just really amazing, and it's just. I don't know. It, it's just sad to me that that yeah, it's great that Junji Ito is getting a lot of attention. He should. He's he's great. I love his stuff, but like. There's this lineage of stuff before him, and I know it's a much harder sell. Niches are just tough to sell, but I don't know. Maybe people listening to this will clamor for Morohoshi Daijiro and other horror mangaka. But if you don't know, it exists, right? And yeah. Like, like the Fred Schatz book to me is still the, the the repository of all the older manga that is legendary that has never been published in English, right? Yes. Like the Fisherman Sanpei. Mm. Oh, Fish Crazed Sanpei. Yes, yes. Or what else is the other one? Oh, like Fire by Hideko Mizuno. Oh, yeah. Uh, Fire isn't out, is it? Nope. You no. Know, Glass Mask. All those yeah. classic titles, right? That you think that it's kind of, I tell people, it's kind of like, you know, like, like loving Led Zeppelin, but not knowing the blues. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, it's like, you know, at Poe, like the, the Poe clan, like that only mm. recently came out, but I don't yeah. really think it hit with the same impact that it did in Japan of like 1971. You know, like the era is different and now- How people could have, it, right? Yeah, well, people are so used to like, you know, homoerotic vampire stuff and they don't realize this woman pioneered that like way before Anne Rice did, way before any of this stuff. It just looks kind of old fashioned now, but 
that was the the ur text you know what i mean that's the original stuff so i don't know i think we're kind of off topic here because now we're kind of just old people complaining that young folks don't know the <laughs> don't know the roots anymore no but that was a theme <laughs> No, I mean, it always is. It always that was is, the theme right? of this. So, <laughs> you know. Let's bring it back then. And I apologize. I, like I like we said, I missed the uh, first little bit of the conversation. But maybe that's a good question. Patrick, you're, I, I feel like you're pretty plugged in right now because you're at Otaku USA still. Is that correct? Or have I put my phone Oh, yeah. No. Uh, yeah. Every two months, we have a new issue. Yeah. Uh, Otaku USA. What's the thing that you think is missing from the landscape right now in terms of like manga or even pop culture that like that is available in Japan or at least was available in Japan that you don't see a lot of right now. What's the thing that you want to see? Like those crazy Ryoichi Ikigami kind of Gekiga sort of things. These were really big back mm. in the day at Viz, like Sanctuary, uh, Crying Freeman. These were like big sellers. They were filled like, you know, like a lot of sex and violence, but beautifully drawn. Like Ikigami yeah. to me is like a god of manga one of the best and he's still alive and he's still doing stuff well there's gonna be that there's a huge show of ikigami's work at angolem this year and i'm so sad i'm missing it because it's a huge Ooh, retrospective yeah, like the mizuki yeah. it's, right it's probably uh, the mizuki production uh the, the mizuki thing in france right mm-hmm. yep. yeah same, same that was really good actually. they're gonna make a monograph and yeah. same curator so i'm missing the ikigami one Dev gave me the Mizuki, uh, the, the, you can't even call it a pamphlet, like the catalog for that show in France. And even though I can't read it very well, it's amazing. So good for them for doing more of that. Patrick, yeah, that's I'm, really interesting that you went right to Ikigami, actually. Because, yeah, that kind of, for lack of a letter word, manly manga. Trash. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that like very aggressive trash doesn't really exist like in the same way anymore. And it did really dominate the landscape at the no. beginning of the manga and anime days. But there are still magazines. There are still monthly magazines here who publish that kind of stuff. I'm blanking on the name of the artist who was another guy who did tons of work with Kazuo Koike back in the day. And he's still drawing stuff where it's like female ninja by night, salary woman by day, you know. Oh, the Lady Snowblood artist? What's his name? The artist who did Lady Snowblood? Uh, no, 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 no. I, I'll, I'll look it up. He did yeah, a series yeah. called Brothers with oh. Kazuo Koike, which is like, wow. has like robot Hitlers and stuff like that. I mean, <laughs> a lot of this stuff will get you canceled in about five seconds. So I understand why like foreign publishers won't touch it, but it's still a thing. Like, a, I think a lot of these monthly magazines come packaged with like DVDs with like pachinko tips and stuff like that. Like there's <laughs> an audience for like these like chain smoking old guys in front of the company. Like this is... This is their jam, and it's still here. The good news for me is that a lot of this stuff is on Amazon Prime here in Japan. So if you pay the fee, pays the fees, you can just eat this stuff up. And I have my my iPad here, and I just sometimes just flip through a few pages just for, for laughs and see what those wacky guys have come up with this time. You know, you know who what what I think is missing on that on that front because it's sort of the same time period of like that kind of 80s like 70s 80s things and maybe you you two aren't as familiar with this but Kyoko Okazaki she yeah. she's this female manga artist who is like huge in underground circles in the 80s and and kind of rose to prominence in the 90s and then unfortunately she got into a really horrific traffic accident like a drunk driver hit her when she was walking on the road and and she became permanently disabled and so she dropped out of the scene around 1995 but like the stuff she did is like so like real slice of life of women in tokyo and like young women and their lives and stuff 
Her assistant was actually Moyoko Anno, mm-hmm. Hideaki Anno's wife, who's like kind of a she kind of rose to fame recently by doing that. Like, you know, my my darling is an insane my useless husband. <laughs> my useless otaku husband who happens to be like Japan's top filmmaker. So like there's so little of that stuff. Like manga is associated like with you know, sex and violence and like, you know, ninja and yokai and like monsters and stuff, which is great. Uh, like, I love it. But like this kind of like real life stuff by real life women who are actually the age of the characters they're portraying and stuff like that. There's so little of that out now. And you know, I'd love to see more of that. That is an awesome point, Matt. So Kyoko Kazaki was actually the first, one of the first people we covered on the podcast. Oh, like really? 80 episodes ago. Oh, wow. Yeah, we covered Helter Skelter. And it was because we, the conceit of the podcast, as longtime listeners may know, is that we're trying to introduce Chip to manga and get away from like, what do you think manga is? Right. At least right. at the beginning. And and then once he's sort of, we've sort of broken down his defenses, then let him have some candy. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, Kyoko yeah. Kazaki, Helter Skelter, which is like a really heavy, heavy book about like the beauty industry and about the things that young women are subjected to. Yeah. He loved it. He was like, oh my God, this is so raw. It's drawn crazy. And I don't know if I like it but i love it you know kind of a thing right 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 vertical released them before they were an imprint of kodansha and then sort of got subsumed into kodansha but they did poorly like they did really really poorly in the market because people didn't want (laughs) to face reality in their mom yeah (laughs) or even like the super but but i will say and the reason i bring it up is that they're actually finally going to do a third kyoko kazaki book and river's edge is coming out in june and that one actually got there was a movie adaptation in japan that was like really really good there was like a tribute volume when i was doing the research on that one there was a tribute volume of like various artists who would like river's edge changed my life and they put together this like 300 page volume of like short manga and essays and there's a song and like like her work really affected people so that's a great deep cut as well well i just you know there's these there's so many architects of modern cool out there you know what i mean it's like if you like junji ito you should be reading mizuki shigeru too do you know what i mean if you like yeah you know slice of life stuff with women you should be reading okazaki kyoko but it's tough i and actually i don't even blame vertical or anybody like that it's tough like to sell things in in you know especially niche things you really have to build buzz and they, there's a limited amount of like money you have to market stuff so i get it but I don't know. I guess it's it's more digging in the crates for people who are so inclined, you know? Yeah. We're in this era, too, that like we're making more money with manga. Like how right. Pokemon manga funded Pulp. I think the current <laughs> manga boom is funding some of this stuff. Like we're get, we got Sigaterra by Minoa Friuli, which is, I'll say it's a hard read, but it's a, right, right. It's important read. I'm sorry, Patrick, I interrupted you. Oh, no, I was just going to jump back and say, Seisaku Kano is the artist I was talking about who's kind of Similar to Ikigami, who's still alive and drawing crazy sex and violence monthly manga comics. So we'll put all this in the show notes, by the way. If you're following along and we just dropped okay. like 150 names yeah, in the exactly. last half hour, don't worry about it. It'll all be in the show notes. I'll go through mm. Wikipedia links. We'll try and find some cool stuff. It'll be all good. Thank you so much for those deep cuts. I'm sure all of the manga editors and acquiring editors that are listening to the podcast right now are furiously typing those names into Google to figure out what they can get. Or at least I hope so. That would be kind of amazing. I want to go back to Ikigami, actually, for a second, because I think that era of manga publishing in North America is one that we probably haven't tackled, Deb, like we we kind of could have. And it's because so little of that material is in print right now. And that's another thing that like 
it's where the conversation gets really cloudy around piracy because strain which for example which is like a nice short action thriller by ikigami it was part of the pulp days is would be a good book to introduce people to right now because it's not like go read sanctuary which is like 14 volumes and is never going to get reprinted or go read you know fist of the north star but then fist of the north star which is not obviously ikigami but bronson did is getting reprinted right now and it's just because it became an online meme the you know uh, you know you're already dead Please, somebody who's better at Japanese, jump in with the shindiru. Omae wa sudeni shindiru. Yes. Uh, yeah, you are already yeah. dead. Yes. And, and that became a huge internet meme. And it was powerful enough as a meme to provoke Viz to reprint the manga. Because they're like, yes, yeah, someone might actually read it this time. Let's give it a shot. You know what I mean? So, and then it's apparently doing okay. They're doing these, they're doing the, the bunkos, I think, but they're doing them as like full size. So like one and a half volumes at a time in hardcover. And it's that kind of thing. Like, do you see... Do you guys see a way in all of your forecasting, you know, wisdom to bring back these titles? Do you, like, are we going to have to make a meme out of every single old manga if we want to see the books in print again? Unfortunately, yes. I mean, seriously, <laughs> I mean, we live we live in an era where memes are culture. You know, this is one of the big differences between zillennial, millennial culture and and Gen Xers. You know, we. We, of course, had memes in the sense of like, you know, movie quotes and things like that, but not like kind of digital net driven, social media driven memes. And those are really the currency of the modern era. And if you can't inject yourself or, or, or kind of ride on some of that, you know, energy, that's, that's the energy, that's the youth energy of today. And if you can't ride it, it's going to be, it's really tough to, you know, get yourself into the discourse, especially among young people. And that's who, I think it would be really cool to have reading this stuff. Like, you know, it's tough to sell people on like my the psychic girl. It's like, you know, 30-year-old manga now. Why am I reading this when I could be reading, you know, the latest Shonen Jump thing? And I'm like, well, you know, there's other stuff out there besides Shonen Jump. You know, you might, you might <laughs> I don't know, broaden your horizons. I don't know. Patrick. Well, I'm looking at darkhorse.com right now, and they have all five volumes of Ikigami and Koike's Crying Freeman. For like four fifty a pop, which I think is cheaper than a Big Mac, even in wow. Japan. Wait a second, yeah. is, this, is that digital or is that like it's digital only? I think digital only is the way to yeah, deal with these for sure kind of weirder niche titles. You know, I mean, why not? And you know, with an iPad, it's not that bad. You know, they did reprint Crying Freeman a few years ago. Yeah, well, and we're going through a thing right now where like everyone's terrified that their Kindle libraries are all going to disappear because they fired everyone at Comicsology last week. But yeah, digital is just such a weird thing like it's so easy to archive like scanlations <laughs> are never going away now right right because right. there's like storage is so cheap uh, both online and offline that those are never ever going to go away now but at the same time like you want to support official releases because you might get more stuff and you might get higher quality you will get higher quality translations and sure better you know content but then <laughs> will it stick around even i think is a really interesting thing like crying freeman dark horse wasn't the original english publisher as we both know so if if they're not the next english publisher does that digital edition that's in your digital dark horse library disappear when it moves back to you know when <laughs> when shogaku khan enters the united states sure. directly and has their own third or fourth or whatever it's it's such a weird time for that kind of thing right now but i will say yeah, Patrick, I had no idea that was actually digitally available. Maybe we're going to go make Chip read some Crying Freeman. That'll be pretty fun. It's not like anything else out there. You bring up something really interesting, which is like that kind of wanting to archive stuff. Because to me, that was like a huge driving force when I was a kid in the yeah. 80s. Like, if I don't buy this now, I won't ever see it again. You know, so yeah. whether 
I was buying like an anthology of manga, you know, whether I was buying, whether in English or Japanese, whether I was buying a toy, because I was hugely into toys. I was actually more, you know, influenced by Japanese toys than I was even manga or anime as a kid. If I didn't get this stuff, it would be gone. And now that's kind of not really the, the, I don't know that young people really have that same kind of like ax hanging over their heads. Like, yeah, it might be annoying that like their Kindle library gets wiped out. But like you said, digital stuff kind of lives forever in some form, yeah. whether it's legal or not. But I see more than ever, like, you know, like YouTube videos of people bragging about their manga collections and right. like talking, I'm talking about the agony of like completing a series that's hard right. to find. But also they always scream. And this is, maybe I'm dating myself, but they'll say, where's the physicals? Right. <laughs> where's the physical? Where's the physical? Yeah, that. Manga, honestly, I can say from the inside, manga publishers hate that yeah, <laughs> because yeah, it's yeah. like we can't keep twenty thousand books from the like complete history of our publishing in print at all times for you know. But I mean, you could; they just wouldn't be very good quality. They'd probably be like digital prints or something like that. But yeah, it, it's. I think the other problem is that I actually I would love your because I have a theory, but you guys are. As I like to say, lifers in the uh, manga <laughs> pop culture anime industry, in the jail, in the never ghetto. getting out. <laughs> you're never, you're never getting out. There's no Mandarake in North America. Well, there was. Like, there's. Well, eh, like, <laughs> sure. Like they had a there store was book in Long off Beach, too, but didn't they? Yeah. yeah. Was, was there book off really? Like, is there book off? Yeah, I know. Compared to-, to compared to what you find in Tokyo, absolutely not. You know, there's no there's no critical mass of like. In North America and in Europe, even of that recycle culture yeah. of like, yeah, you, you own something and it's super precious to you. And over time, you know, y- you realize oh, I actually can't hold on to all this stuff. So you bring it sadly, sadly and dutifully to the Mandarake and like sell it off. And there was actually a really good, there's a really good um, anecdote. I can't remember what it was in, but I think it was both of you guys bringing like a childhood toy, like a giant SDF one or something to the Mandarake. And you wrote up like how to sell toys right. at Mandarake. I don't think that was us, but I, I, I we sympathize. We sold the Yamato, remember? The, uh, maybe, yeah, the that Yamato. Was, maybe that was It was us. you, yeah. Oh, God, I so, don't remember. So I actually read that when I went to sell something at Mandarake for the first time. I'm like, okay, you oh! can do this. You don't have any Japanese. Here you go. So I, it, without that critical mass, though, things don't like – it's not like things go into the Mandarake because you know that's where you sell the nerd stuff. Like sometimes it might end up at Goodwill and Goodwill might end up tossing it because yeah, they don't definitely. know what they've got on their hands. So Japan though, like before foreigners started coming over and buying things and taking them out of the country in the used, you know, sort of space, things could last forever. Like when, yes. you, when I started going to Japan in 2007, it was already sort of at the tail end of that. But like you could go to Super Potato and every game that had ever been published for the Nintendo Entertainment System or the Famicom or sure, sure, even sure. some of the old stuff we didn't get was still there. And now, especially with the weekend, some foreigner shows up with like 10 grand, cleans out the store of all the rare stuff, and that's never coming back to Japan. So yeah. that's that's the part that I think is missing in North America is that like in Japan, you can always find something that somebody's talking about you can always like you you know the nerd sections there someone's like oh and have you ever read the manga by any of the guys we've mentioned now and it's like no but i'll go to the mandarake closest to me and they'll have like half of his catalog available i'll just grab something at random you can't do that in north america or the manga kisa the rental library right yeah there's no recycle culture in north america the way that there is in japan and matt you were saying about manga museums 
Yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of, you know, there's a lot of more manga culture here. So there's the Yonezawa Manga Museum with Meiji University, which you can go see, check books out at. There's a Shoujo Manga Museum in Okutama, which is about an hour outside of Tokyo. There's, and there's a big manga museum in, in, in Takarazuka outside of Kyoto. So there's a lot of this kind of stuff here. And just, you know, just today, I really wanted to see a, an old issue of Shonen Magazine from the 1960s. And you can just find these things. I, I like Mandarake had it for 700 yen. It's like five bucks. I just picked it up and had it sent to my house. So it's yeah. like a, a magazine from 1965. Like I'm, you know, maybe you can do that in the States, uh, you know, with American magazines, but I don't know that they're like you're saying, there's any repository of vintage culture in, in the States yeah. like there is here in Japan. It's taking this all the way back, you know, I daily look at Mandarake online for things that I want to buy on auction oh, yeah. or whatever. And it took me four years, but eventually I found it. The making of Lensmen, the art book. <laughs> yes. Mine yes. for a thousand yen. So stuff comes up eventually. Every Sooner or later, things will come yeah. around again. But also, like, you don't have to go to a library or to university to find, you know, Manga Kisa, Manga Cafe is like a huge thing. Even now, as we talk about the death of physical media and all this kind of stuff like that, it, you know, this is this is the great, you know, the, the lesson of Manga Manga is, Manga's everywhere in Japan, yeah. right? <laughs> exactly. As we all And you will say. never, ever, ever read it all. Ever. Yeah, that's <laughs> no, you will Go not. This. this isn't Pokemon kids. You can't get them all. <laughs> it's so funny. I live around the corner from like a small publisher who's physically prints like manga weeklies. I forget which it might might be jump. It's just a small local publisher. And then, you know, like all over the block here on like recycling day. There are, there's at least inevitably one or two piles of manga. Oh, wow. It's just like this in out kind of like filtration pump. You know, this, this side of the street, they're printing it. This side of the street, they're recycling. So I don't know. <laughs> a lot of people make a big, a big point about how no one reads manga anymore. Everyone's on their phones. But I, there are enough guys in front of the, the company chain smoking who still need something physical to read. So, yeah. Absolutely, and those and one thing we've never covered on the on the podcast because there's no English translation is those like cheap Kambini bind up versions of manga. Oh I, yeah, I love yeah. those. Yeah, yeah, like Golgo thirteen. They're like Tonkaban, but they're published on like the the crappy paper that the like yes. the weeklies are published on, and it's like they're like eight hundred pages. Yeah. Yeah, for people. like three bucks because you got to kill time with a smoke and a beer at the convenience <laughs> room or Strong Zero, I guess. That's wild. There's so much more I would have loved to have talked to you guys about, but I think we've hit maybe the end of where we should we should wrap this up. Deb? I just knew this would be a fun conversation and we wouldn't have to prod you guys too, too much to get great stuff. <laughs> so thank you so much for taking the time. Well, let's do it again. Let's do it again, shall we? Yes, exactly. And in the meantime, please, please buy my book. Buy my book. Buy Patrick's books. <laughs> listen to our podcast. Yeah, listen to Pure Tokyo Scope. Please. Pure Tokyo Scope and read Pure Invention. You know where to find me. I'm on, you know, I'm on the internets. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. So is Patrick. You can you can find us wherever podcasts are found. <laughs> That's our line. But yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but thank, but no, but thanks for having us. It was a lot of fun. No, it was super fun. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks, dudes. This has been Manga Splaining, episode number 91, Pure Tokyo Scope. Thanks for listening. For our next episode, we'll be discussing the manga My Love Story by Kazune Kawahara 
and Aruko. Want to pick up a copy? Consider supporting your local comic book and manga specialty shop. Find one near you at comicshoplocator.com. Or check out your local library for print and digital lending options. You can also follow along with our complete reading list at mangasplaining.com and check out our newsletter and digital publishing endeavor at mangasplainingextra.com. Thanks to DADS for their musical accompaniment this episode. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.